This is the Aspire Podcast. The Aspire Podcast is all about sharing the stories of those who have aspired into full-time Christian ministry. As we share their stories, we hope to encourage, excite, and equip you to consider what it would mean to aspire towards ministry. Hey, welcome back to the second half of this Q&A episode to end off season one. We're going to go through another great series of questions today. We're going to explore questions such as, is there a tendency for people to pursue a full-time vocational ministry trajectory too early? What would disqualify someone from pursuing full-time ministry? What if I'm scared of full-time ministry because I'm scared of being in the spotlight as a target for allocations of some kind? What are the logistical pathways to go into ministry? The differences between work as a philosophy and full-time vocational ministry? Part-time ministry? A discussion about how strategic should you be in deciding about how to serve amongst many other great questions. So really excited to share the second half of this Q&A episode with you now. Enjoy. Sherwin has asked a really good question as well. Is there a tendency for people to pursue a full-time vocational ministry trajectory too early? e.g. mid to late 20s. Jesus didn't start his ministry until his early 30s. Is it worth waiting a few years to gain some more life experience? Yeah, look, I think this is a good question. As I was um, just reflecting on some of the questions, I was um, didn't quite have the time to go back and uh, read some of the stories of the heroes of the faith. Some that I vaguely remember hearing about was they're sort of regularly preaching or running a church in their early 20s, right? So if anything, maybe for some people you could then say, well, if church history is anything to go by, you might say if you're waiting till your early to mid-30s, then you've waited too long. Um, that, that's one end, one one sort of side of the coin. I think the other thing, I'd be always a little cautious um, to prescribe in, in every case that just because Jesus went into public ministry in his early 30s that then everyone else should. Um, there are some who... Um, are not really, if you like, suitably enabled because of character and opportunity to do it until their 40s. That doesn't mean that they're sort of sinning or doing anything wrong. And so I'd sort of say it the other way. I'd say, look, I think there's wisdom in enabling godly character to form and develop, and I think this is going to take different lengths of time for different people. So you do meet some who in their, I meet some who in their early 20s strike me as being very mature, whereas there are others who well into their 20s have still not yet worked out how to actually mature as Christians. So I'd be a little nervous about being overly prescriptive, which is why I take it in the context of being known by people in the church community. It's about the people knowing and weighing up whether or not you're ready. Having said that, um, I think there is some wisdom in waiting a few years to gain um, a greater Christian maturity and to enable those conversations with um, wiser, older people to take place to discern suitability. Keep in mind, as we heard from Mikey, that... um, even in ministry, you're still in the real world, right? Because you're engaging with people and you're carrying their burden of what it means for them to be a Christian. And we heard that from Nathan as well. Um, but for those who are thinking of maybe waiting until well into their 30s, I want to say, well, look, the days are short. Jesus is returning soon. So don't wait too long. If you're able to start sooner, then start sooner. Because as Jesus has said, um, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. So we pray the Lord might raise up more workers for the harvest field. And it might be that the answer to your prayer is that he sends you as a laborer into his harvest field. And he might do it a heck of a lot sooner than you had originally intended would be the case. 
But if you go, know that you're going into the Lord's harvest field as the Lord's worker, having been prepared by the Lord, enabled by the Lord to do the Lord's work, and the Lord will provide for you. I like that. I'm sure yep. the next two questions have got a background or context of the very sad situation of the Ravi Zacharias fall and Carl Lenz fall and other ministers of the gospel who in recent years have sadly disqualified themselves or or revealed certain character flaws, very sadly. So Sherwin's asked, what would disqualify someone from pursuing full-time ministry, particularly in relation to character flaws? Well, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the description uh, that Paul gives in 1 Timothy 3 is helpful. The standard for acceptance into ministry is not first and foremost competency, but rather character. And in this case, I think the context there is that you demonstrate your character after observation from others who know you well. So my question would be is if you're pursuing full-time gospel work, then keep working on your character and see if others discern that your character is suitable for not just being a follower of Jesus, but also then um, for being able to lead others and take responsibility for others. It's, it's worth saying also here that with regard to character, God forgives all of our sin in Jesus. So being someone who commits sin itself doesn't disqualify you from being a gospel worker because gospel workers still sin. But we need to be careful that presuming that being a gospel worker excuses you from repentance and forgiveness in Jesus or that someone... Um, uh, or that God is somehow less interested or concerned about your sin because you are a gospel worker, if you hold either of those two views, then that's very problematic. That's a sort of a dangerous path to be walking down. So I think in answer to Sherwin's question, the thing that would disqualify from someone would be those people, even if they're keen to pursue being a gospel worker, but those who are unrepentant with regard to sin, even small sins. You're just not willing to admit that it's a sin, even if you've been convicted and even if you feel guilty about it. I think if that's the case, then it should act as a break on encouraging people to pursue being a gospel worker. Now, hopefully it won't disqualify them forever because with God's help and God can forgive sin and God can work his people's lives and with the encouragement of others, then the individual concerned may be able to deal with that unrepentant sin so they are repentant of their sin. In some cases, that may take some months or it might take some years, which may be the reason why it is better for some to wait longer to ensure that they have good habits and practices. Um, so I think that would probably be what would disqualify someone. That's mm. the, the, this mm -hmm. sort of unrepentant, ongoing unrepentant sin, I think, would probably be one of the things, assuming all of the other things, like you're suitably qualified with regard to character and have some competencies. So. Thinking about my age demographic, 18, 25-year-olds looking to go into ministry, certainly something that a lot of people struggle with is pornography. Thoughts yeah. on that? If they're struggling with pornography, to what extent should they have conquered pornography before they can go on the ministry trajectory or confidently go into Bible college or into a ministry position? Mm. Yes, I think for uh, some in that particular age group, it is something that many struggle with. And so my encouragement there is talk to someone. Um uh, it, uh, the, the more we know uh, helpful about, helpfully about some of the research that's been done uh, by scientists and researchers is it's uh, like a, it is a form of addiction for some people and addiction is rarely broken uh, just through being strong-willed and overcoming it. Um, and so my first suggestion there is go and talk to someone who 
you can feel comfortable confiding in your pastor or an accountability past partner. Um, there's some good resources that will help Christian both uh, men and women um, seek to um, seek the forgiveness that's freely available in Jesus for this particular um, sin that can often be so besetting in the lives of people. Um, in terms of the extent to which it needs to be conquered, to use your language before going into ministry, um, I think that's um, part of an ongoing, honest conversation with um, uh, the person who is helping you work through ministry. Um, uh, I don't think that uh, there's a particular standard that says you can cross the threshold for considering ministry when you have sinned less than X times in the week, for example. I just We're not wired like that. It's, it's too mechanistic, too... We're just not wired like that, right? It's it's an attitude towards the sin in our life and the extent to which we're putting them off. It's the willingness to be repentant under the love and grace and the forgiveness offered in Jesus. Um, uh, but if it is uh, something that is not yet um, significantly dealt with and that there are not good habits and practices in place to be able to resist that temptation, then I think, again, that should be should give the individual cause to just pause before they pursue, um, actually sort of make the step to be pursuing mm. gospel ministry. So I, I think that's probably what I'd say in answer mm. to that question. Linked to the context of the Rabbi Zacharias scandal, from my key question being, what if I'm scared of full-time ministry because I'm scared of being in the spotlight as a target and potentially guilty for allegations of some kind of moral or syst systemic failure? Yeah, it's a related question, isn't it? I mean, my first thought would be is on one hand, every individual is guilty of moral failure. Right? We all fail morally before the Lord because no one is righteous, not even one. So in that sense, we're all exactly the same, right? We're all guilty of moral failings, which is why we need the forgiveness in Jesus, which is why as believers we've received that forgiveness and we ought to be thankful for it. And with the help of his spirit, you know, as Paul would say in Romans 6, what then shall we say that we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means, says Paul. So I think the first thing to say is, um, yes, we're all guilty of moral failures and we need to recognise that and accept the forgiveness that's offered in Jesus. I think the sense in which um, uh, we're scared of being in the spotlight as a target and or for some we're scared of bringing the gospel into disrepute um, is on one hand it's a little bit of a hard question to answer. Um, I think if that's a genuine feeling for you then maybe that's um, something that should prevent you from going into gospel ministry. Now, having said that, though, I, I think the Lord enables us to be, with his help, um, putting off sin in our life. And I think as long as in our public ministry we keep publicly recognising the forgiveness available in Jesus and the realisation that those of us in gospel ministry are just like everybody else, just because you're in gospel ministry doesn't mean you're necessarily less of a sinner um, or you, you don't struggle with sin um, but it means that you've been willing to take some responsibility not only in managing your own life and godliness but also the lives of others so i think i'd say look um, you for those who go into gospel ministry you need to make sure that you're still working at your life and godliness you've got some good accountability from people on a ministry team or um, from others in the ministry in which you're involved with and you need to keep coming back to jesus and repenting of sin um, so that there isn't going to be a significant sort of public allegation made against you um, in that regard. It's watching your life and doctrine closely. Yeah. Hmm. 
So a, a follow-up question I have to that then is, what if someone is just really worried that they're going to stuff up morally? Is there something that they can do to reduce that anxiety that they might accidentally slip into a certain sin or do something that would bring the, the gospel into disrepute? Is, is there something that would reduce that level of anxiety, things that we can do or practices that we can have? Do you know what I'm saying here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a great follow-up question. A couple of things to say. Um, uh, we need to remember from James chapter 1 that James says that uh, when we're tempted, it's not God tempting us, but we're tempted when uh, we are lured by our own uh, evil desires. And when we feed those desires, it, it brings forth sin and ultimately sin brings forth death. So it's worth remembering that um, for all of us, whether or not we're in uh, some form of lay ministry or paid ministry, part-time, full-time, whatever it's going to be, um, as Christian men and women, there will always be temptations that come in our lives. Uh, that will be different for different people and in different seasons of life, those temptations may be different. Uh, in some senses, it's no different from those in positions of ministry, from people who aren't in positions of ministry, those temptations. It's true of all believers. I think sometimes, though, um, if people in ministry presume that their position uh, somehow uh, makes them um, above sin in the sense that they're sort of they're just not going to sin or that it doesn't matter if they sin, then I think that's a very dangerous position to hold. Um, and so I think there ought always to be a, a genuine, um, for all believers, be they in ministry or not in ministry, there ought always to be good spiritual habits and practices of seeking to read the word regularly for God to be speaking to us in his word, to be setting aside time, to be meditating on it and reflecting on our own lives and allowing the Holy Spirit to be convicting us in light of the word of God about the areas of our life that aren't rightly lived before God. And then an opportunity to respond to God through prayer, um, maybe seeking forgiveness or giving thanks for the areas of life in which there's a demonstrated work of the spirit as the spirit and the word work together. And in some senses then, and not in some senses, but in that other sense also, the action is to seek to live differently next time. So it's that idea of repentance before God. I think for any believer who does that, then that's the mark of the Christian who's growing in the Christian faith. So I'd be hopeful that anyone who's considering ministry is already putting those things into practice. And hopefully for those people listening who are considering appointing people into ministry, that ought to be a really um, great um, and significant question that's asked of all potential ministry candidates. So I think what it means is that um, for people who presume that because they've now made it into a position of ministry, they can stop doing all of those other things regularly. Uh, that ought to be a warning in the same way. It ought to be a warning for any believer who presumes upon the grace and the mercy mm. of God. So Hebrews 4 comes to mind when um, the writer speaks and reminds their readers um, of what Joshua said, you know, today, if you, hard, if you hear the voice of the Lord, do not harden your hearts. Like there's that sense in which Every day when we hear the word of the Lord, we are to respond in repentance and faith and keep living well before God. Um, I think that that's the antidote, right? The antidote is not try harder because that's just a works-based theology. The antidote is uh, we uh, fall on the mercy and forgiveness that God offers in Jesus in his death and resurrection. 
uh, we realise that we're people who aren't perfect this side of the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, we will need forgiveness. Um, and that ought to be um, undertaken regularly between each individual and God. And at the same time, within the Christian community, there ought to be um, a recognition that even people in ministry are not beyond sinning. They will still sin. And so they ought to be uh, treated in with with an appropriateness that recognises that the, the person who is up the front, who is leading you, is a believer just like you are, and they're prone to all sorts of temptations. And so in the same way that we ought to pray for brothers and sisters, we ought particularly to pray for our leaders that the Lord prevents them from giving into temptation, that because they're public figures, they might not bring the gospel into disrepute. So I guess I think that's probably how I'd try and answer the question. Do you want to come back at me on that one? Or? Yeah, no, I think that's that's really helpful. I think it's helpful to have perhaps a little bit of holy fear, if I can say like that, a bit of a fear that, yeah, yeah I am a sinful person and I need to be careful yeah. that I don't... Yeah put off the old and put on the new, which is something that I don't go beyond. I don't suddenly become a category of my own, which reminds me of Sam yeah. Albury reflecting on the Ravi Zacharias scandal by saying that Ravi just didn't have enough people in his life who were keeping him accountable. And so we need yeah. to keep having people who are going to keep us confessing and, and being honest about our own sin. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Question from CJ Gunther. Hey, CJ, thanks for your question, mate. What are the logistical pathways going into ministry? So, for example, one ex university that we've spoken about, a college, is more college. There's other colleges, obviously, that are really great and fantastic as well, SMBC, so on. What, 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 what do you need to do to, go, to get into ministry, the pathways, four years, five years, theological education, just on a broad basis? What could you say to that? Uh, yeah, I mean, on one hand, it does depend on what form you would like the ministry to take. So if you're considering doing some form of church-based parish ministry, then different denominations have different pathways and expectations. Um, generally, most of them will have the expectation that you will undertake some form of formal theological training. So three or four years at a recognised theological college, um, in which case, if you're considering pursuing that, then you need to go and do that. Uh, that's one of the things you need to go and do in the same way that if in, say, New South Wales and elsewhere, you want to go and be a teacher, you need to have at least a Master's of Teaching as a qualification. So um, I think in terms of the trajectory to get there, I think if you're starting out considering it, then you need to spend some time speaking with others to discern suitability. Uh, you need to be having conversations with your church pastor and others who know you well. For some, it's talking to people um, in your family about talking to them about that, that what your path, what, that's what your pathway is going to be. I think having said that, there is also real value in testing, being tested as to whether or not you're suitable for, say, paid full-time gospel work. So a, a two-year ministry apprenticeship, I personally believe, can be very important and very helpful for many people. Um, it's not necessary, but I think it can be highly valued because for people who go and do a two-year apprenticeship, it helps them realise um, what it's like to actually be on the job full-time and to be paid to be doing it. Um, it helps you identify the capacities that you have as an individual and the ways in which you need to grow if this is going to be something you're going to do for God willing the next several decades. Um, yeah, I, I think they'd be probably some of the things I'd be wanting to say about that. Um, yep. Question also from Irene. Can you speak to the differences in both the underlying philosophy and then practical implications of ministry as a vocation versus a nine to five job? Yes, in some senses, um, when you move from being when you move into being, uh, say, a full-time paid gospel worker, 
Um, you're now receiving remuneration for a thing that you may have previously been doing in a voluntary sense. So there are many people who regularly, in a part-time voluntary capacity, are out there doing ministry. Um, there are people who are doing that when they lead their Bible study in their church home group and they receive no financial remuneration for it. There are people who do that when they uh, run the kids' program or their holiday program at church. So in a sense, there's on one hand no difference in the activity that is being undertaken between those who are doing voluntary gospel work and those who are doing um, paid gospel work. Uh, one of the differences, though, is that the person who is paid as a gospel worker has been freed up from, freed up from other forms of um, financial means that they might be given over to more of their week to in their activity of um, engaging in a study of the word of God and teaching it to other people. It is fair to say uh, that uh, sometimes those in ministry, uh, paid gospel ministry, find it hard to sort of clock on and clock off because there is a sense in which um, ministry is much more of a lifestyle than a job. And I, I think there's a sense in which you need to try and avoid the extreme views of either of them. I think you need to avoid the extreme view that ministry is purely a lifestyle and therefore I should work at my lifestyle all the time and never have any downtime. That sounds like there's no boundaries in that person's life. Right? At the other end, the danger is we need to avoid the extreme that says ministry, I'm only doing ministry when I'm paid to do ministry and because I'm sort of working 35 hours a week, therefore I clock on, clock off. Well, actually, I don't think that's what ministry is about, right? Because ministry is about people. It's not just about a form of employment. So somewhere between those two endpoints is the practical implication of ministry as employment. So yes, it's true that in certain seasons and in certain parts of the week, it's sometimes a bit harder to know, well, am I at work or am I not at work? Well, that's what the individual needs to work out depending upon their circumstance. Are they single? Are they married? Do they have family? Do they have, what are their other responsibilities? Um, at the same time, they need to realise that you don't just sort of, on one hand, you, you don't stop being a minister of the gospel because there's always opportunity to bring the word of God to bear into the lives of people. And there's always need to do that. So somewhere between those two things um, is sort of striking the balance. Another question we've got here from Cooper. Should more people be considering part-time work and part-time ministry? Why don't more people do this already? What are the main advantages or disadvantages of this? Yeah, it's a great question. Thanks for the question, Cooper. A couple of things to be saying there. I think if I've understood the question correctly, what you're sort of um, suggesting, Cooper, is that we, um, why is it that more people aren't, in a sense, taking what you might call a bivocational understanding of ministry in that you seek to hold sort of two things together, both working in a non-ministry setting and then also undertaking part-time ministry. Uh, we know that the Apostle Paul really modelled this. Uh, Paul himself would... Um, often remind his um, his readers uh, that he undertook a ministry of tent making uh, to be self-supporting, to meet all of his financial needs and obligations, his personal needs and obligations. But we do realise that um, at times he had the apostolic right to um, ask and I take it expect financial and material support from those whom he was ministering to. And on occasion he uh, forego, for, for he, he didn't uh, take that up, but on other occasions he did take that up. Um, and I, so I think there is a, a biblical model for some people for people to be considering that. I think probably historically uh, that's not been 
a dominant model in Western churches, uh, particularly um, in those in the middle to upper class uh, uh, churches that are seeking to reach those areas of people. So I'm thinking particularly the historical pattern of, say, uh, Roman Catholicism and then the Anglican Church, where there's a sort of a clear a separateness between the things of the world and the things of God. There's a sort of a clear, quite a clear delineation of being set aside to be doing um, gospel work and uh, seeking to try and give that your life and your your passions and your desires and your time wholeheartedly to that. Um, I, I think there's a great value for those who are able to be supported by the local church and other individuals if they can set aside more and more of their week to be doing ministry, uh, but realise under some circumstances that's not always possible. Um, I could tell a number of stories of people who, one, gen one gentleman I know who's um, a church planter uh, now who, uh, when he was doing his apprenticeship, he refused to be um, paid to do the apprenticeship. He uh, had started his own business and wanted to be self-supported. He believed strongly in not wanting to be a burden on anybody. Uh, he kept the business running uh, and went through Bible college and that paid his way through Bible college. I at times don't know how he managed to juggle both of those things. And it was only, I think, probably about maybe five to eight years after finishing college, having planted a church when the church was actually financially self-sustaining and able to then pay him a full wage that he then sold the business because uh, he realised that he wanted to then spend more time working in ministry. Um, uh, so should more people be considering it? Well, I think if it's the means by which we will see more people giving more time for ministry, then yes, more people should be considering it. But it's not for everybody. Um, I, I'm nervous about legislating that it ought to be a thing that more and more people take up, partly because my observation is that um, for some people, trying to do two part-time things means that you sometimes struggle to do either of them well. So there is some advantage in actually seeking to try and commit to doing one thing as your sort of dominant thing that fills your headspace and your emotional energy and your time in the week. Um, and so uh, previously, that's why I've advocated that there is some wisdom and a great benefit of those who are able to set aside uh, the, the years to do full-time theological college. Uh, um, but I think the same would be true. There might be some who are able to juggle part-time work. I think it depends on the nature of work. Some employers won't offer that sort of part-time work, but others might. Um, yeah, so I think that's probably the answer to the question there. Um, there's a couple of advantages and disadvantages. I think the advantage is particularly if the part-time work is your own and you're maybe self-employed and you set your own hours, it allows flexibility week to week, month to month, such that in busy seasons of the ministry, uh, you may be able to take on uh, you know, less uh, work in your own business. But sometimes the disadvantage is if you have a peak season in your business that you're running and a peak season in ministry, then it'll place potentially significant strain and emotional weariness both on you and or your family um, in, in terms of that sort of season of life. So I think it, it's, um, it's quite possible, and I've, I've seen people do it and do it um, with God's help arguably very successfully, um, but there's a couple of things to just be very mindful of. Um, my suggestion, Cooper, if you're particularly interested in it or if others, is to find someone who's walked that path before and go and spend some good time with them and maybe get them to mentor you uh, if that's really something that you're thinking about doing. Looking forward to having Jules Pritchard on. He's a friend of mine who's a church planner in the Northern Beaches who is bivocational, so he runs his landscaping business and has planted this church at the same time, so it'd be good to talk to him more about that.
Another question here from Irene. I'd love a discussion on this. Often City Bible Forum and AFES groups say that they are empowering workers and students to do the ministry, quote-unquote. Donors say that they're financially setting aside gospel workers to, quote-unquote, do the ministry because they don't have the time, energy, gifting, context to, to pastors. Um, pastors say that they're equipping the congregation to, quote-unquote, do the ministry, but then the pastorate is itself is called ministry. At its best, it sounds like the body of Christ working in beautiful harmony at its worst, everyone pointing fingers at each other, hoping someone else will do the job. So it's kind of a, a comment and a question in one here from Irene. But what do you have to say about this, Patty? Yeah, well, um, uh, I, I work in the context of student ministry, so her sort of comment around AFES groups um, is one that I can resonate with. I, I know uh, uh, the Ministry of City Bible Forum and know some of the people who are involved in the ministry there, but I'm not particularly going to speak to that. I'm very, very happy if you take that up with them, but I think the principle would still be applied. So I think let me try and um, answer Irene's question from the understanding of, for example, what AFES is seeking to do. Uh, one of the things that AFES seeks to do is it seeks to build student groups. And in building those student groups, it um, it hopes that those students student groups would then evangelise the campus in their local context, that they would then grow the students who are in those student groups up in the maturity and knowledge and love of Jesus, that they would train the students to both do evangelism and to build them up in their maturity. And then the students would be sent out um, as well-equipped um, graduates from the campus work that's happening. Uh, one of the um, features, particularly in the AFES work uh, in the last 15 to 20 years around the country, has been um, a significant growth in the number of staff workers who have sought to be connected to various campus groups, campus ministries, the student groups that are on the campuses, and have sought to work in partnership with the student groups. Um, in a number of these cases, the uh, staff workers who uh, we would say are in ministry, uh, doing the work that we talked about when we talked about ministry and that they're bringing the word of God to bear into the lives of the students. They're seeking to um, uh, evangelize non-Christians who they meet with on the campus. They're seeking to teach the Christians on the campus what it means for the Christians to be disciples and followers of Jesus. They're doing this through training and then ultimately uh, through giving the students a God, a biblical vision of God's great plan uh, to see the nations evangelised. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're the only ones doing the ministry, to use Irene's turn of phrase, because when it's working well in partnership between students and staff, the staff are actually equipping and enabling and uh, continuing to give that current generation of students a vision that they also would be doing the ministry, that the students themselves would also be out there doing evangelism with their classmates, with their friends, with their peers, um, in all sorts of contexts, that the students themselves would be leading Bible studies of other students, that their younger students would be growing in their maturity, that sometimes the students would be taking up opportunities to train other students and then hopefully be sent. So I think um, on one hand, AFES has sought to, um, in Irene's sort of own words, uh, have the body of Christ working in beautiful harmony. And uh, that doesn't mean AFES has done it perfectly. There are all sorts of instances where, for example, um, the partnership between staff and students has not functioned as well as we would have liked. And um, that's very unfortunate and we've had to go and 
um, seek forgiveness and um, try and repair the trust that's between that should be between staff and students. So I think it's fair to say that the students are on campus first and foremost because they've enrolled as students. So their their first or dominant activity is actually undertaking their studies. And for some of them, they're not on campus very much because their study load might be four to six to eight hours a week. Um, and that actually gives them a lot of disposable time in their week to either undertake ministry activities on campus or with friends serving in their local church and then even trying to juggle part-time work and the like, right? Um, so I think what you get is you get both students doing ministry and staff doing ministry. The staff are often modelling the ministry to the students because invariably the staff are older, uh, often are wiser, generally are the formally theologically trained. Um, and I think that gives a great model um, of the older men and women uh, training younger men and women to grow them up in the faith and then send them out into the world, both to keep serving in their local church and all around the globe. Um, yeah, I think that's probably how I'd try and answer Irene's question. Do you think I've uh, sort of got to the heart of what she's talking about, Aaron? Yeah, doing ministry together in partnership. Yeah. yeah. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, and I would hope, and I, I think there's a, a range of expressions of this across various denominations that I'm aware of, so I, I can't particularly speak for a number of denominations, but I do know as I engage with many students and I ask them about what the ministry in their local church looks like, that it's there's a variation. And so in some churches, there is a perception that the minister, the, the employed pastor, is the one who does all the ministry and the congregation just sits back and receives it. Uh, other churches say that, no, actually, the minister seeks to then empower the people in the congregation to be doing lots of ministry. And I think, uh, depending upon our sort of various church upbringings and the various churches that we've been to, there's quite a range of expressions of those, at least all around Sydney, if not around the country. Yeah. Hmm. Another question from Irene, how does the timing in aspiring to ministry interact with major life decisions slash commitments that people make around their 20s or 30s, such as purchasing property, starting a family, figuring out if they want to be married, figuring out who to marry? What would you say to that? Um, well, two significant decisions that we need to keep remembering in life, which um, I'm not trying to be overly hard on Irene because she's asked a really, really great great question, but I, I will generally push back when students broadly and others ask me the question. The two other sort of significant moments in life we need to remember for the Christian are their conversion, that moment where they remember or they uh, a particular point in time where they accepted Jesus as Lord um, or a season in life where they realised that Jesus was Lord. I think that's always worth remembering that particular moment, and that's a significant decision for many people in life. And the second one we need to remember is that Jesus is coming back again. And that's actually a significant time in all of our lives, not just in our lives, but in the lives of everybody. And if Jesus is coming back again tomorrow, which he may, then that ought to radically reshape the way in which we view not just the world, but the way in which we view our decisions. I think sometimes we just presume and almost not take for granted, but we sort of seek to just look into the future rather than looking back to see of all the things that God has done for us in our life. And we worry sometimes about our future trajectory. And if the things that we often worry about are often things of the world, decisions about the things in the world, and if we take our eyes off that great time that's coming, which is the last day when the Lord returns, then I think our decisions, firstly, 
aren't placed in the right perspective. And secondly, sometimes we can make too much of those decisions. Hmm. Having said that, is it a significant thing if you choose to marry someone? Yes, absolutely. Because according to the Bible, the hope and expectation is that you take that seriously and you commit to that person for the rest of your life unless one or both of you are parted by death, right? Um, is potentially buying property a significant decision? Well, if you need to borrow money, then yes, because often the uh, conditions of the loan mean that you're in some sort of indebtedness, maybe bondage or slavery, right, to the bank to pay them back all the money at their terms and conditions, right? These are significant life decisions that are worthy of due prayerfulness and consideration and ought not to be rushed into, for example. But they almost pale in comparison to that day when the Lord is coming back again and the new heavens and the new earth are brought into being and all of the things of this world uh, will be remembered but are a very uh, limited value. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I'd say to Irene, look, there's um, uh, always going to be significant life decisions. It feels like, I think, for those in the early 20s, that the ones that you make in your sort of 20s are going to be the biggest ones in life. But I suspect my encouragement there is go and talk to some older people in your congregations, the 60 and the 70-year-olds, and ask them about the other significant decisions they had to make in life. And they will say, look, there's always going to be significant decisions, Um, not everyday decisions, but there will be some significant decisions. And so we make them trusting that the Lord has saved us in Jesus. We look back to our conversion. We look forward to the return of Jesus. And sometimes we follow the biblical commands, if it's a decision that is clear in Scripture, or we seek after having read scripture and searching our conscience and the wisdom of others, a decision which is wisdom orientated from the Bible. I think in all these things, yes, all of the decisions that we make are important and they all will affect our ability and to some extent our freedoms to do particular types of ministry. So I have the wonderful privilege of being married. I've been married for nearly 27 years and I have um, uh, six children. Um, one of the things that means is that I've made commitments to my wife and to my children and they ought to uh, be a factor in my deliberations if I choose to make ministry decisions. For example, would I take up a ministry position somewhere else than where I'm currently serving? Uh, When might that be and what are the implications of that? Um, So the decisions, the things that we've already said yes to, which I take it we ought to honour because Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, Uh, that may preclude us from making other ministry decisions down the track. I think of particular significance at the moment is the desire for many to own property and to purchase property sometimes very early in life. I think there's um, a fear that not many want to admit. They're afraid that they will miss out. And I think particularly among Generation Z, there is this sort of FOMO, the fear of missing out. What if I can't own a house? Um, To which I want to say... Uh, to what extent is your salvation now less secure if you don't own a house, right? Let's just put things in the eternal perspective. Uh, owning a pile of bricks or not, um, what what is that in regard to your salvation? Again, trust the words of Jesus when in the Sermon of the Mount, um, when he speaks about how the Lord clothes the lilies of the field, and yet he knows our needs even before we ask and will always provide for us in every way. Um, there's great security and comfort in trusting in the words of Jesus, far more so than our perceived security in a house or an apartment or whatever it's going to be. And so I think we ought to I think very carefully about um, what's the motive behind, for example, the purchase of property. 
Do we think we will be more secure if we own property than if we're renting? And where does that come from? How much of it is parental expectations? How much of it is our own expectations? How much it is our peers and the peer pressure, for example? I think that's immensely comforting, but also challenging because I think you're totally right. We have so much FOMO about having to make the perfect decision so that our life is perfect. And if it's not just right and we've made the just right decision, then our life's going to be stuffed. I think that's just silly. And I just was really warmed by your words saying that just Jesus is returning, like put everything else in perspective of that. So absolutely, thank you. And on one hand, without not being flippant or anything, I want to say if you've if uh, Jesus will will tell us in Luke's gospel, right? If your names are written in the book of life, that is in what you rejoice. Mm. You've made the right decision, right? Because the Lord has done His work of of choosing you in election, and the gospels come to you, and you've accepted it with great joy, um, and that's the perfect decision, right? And so now we look for the return of Jesus, and we live life accordingly this side of the return of Jesus, um, seeking to follow God in all that we do. Another question here from Rowan, a really interesting question. Thank you for this question, Rowan. How strategic should you be in deciding about how to serve? For a specific example, I can speak Japanese, have lots of contacts there, know some of the culture. Would it be a waste if I ended up in Sydney? Uh, yeah, this is a great question, Rowan. Thank you very much for your question. Um, just full disclosure, Rowan and I um, have talked a little bit about this, um, so I'm just putting that out there, right? This is a, a good issue that he and I have talked about. Um, it's In terms of, I think, the strategy question, we have to, it, it is a little bit, in a sense, difficult to try and read the scriptures and then come up with a clear strategic plan from just reading the scriptures. Uh, there's lots and lots of books on leadership that seek to do it. And I think my observation for some of the ones that I've read anyway is that they tend to find a particular proof text and base a sort of a biblical understanding of strategy uh, on one particular verse. Having said that, one of the things I think we can say broadly is that God's strategy, if you like, God's plan, is that everything is brought under the Lordship of Christ, uh, uh, that everyone is presented mature before him, Colossians chapter 1. Right? That's God's plan. Um, God has chosen to act through many and various ways in the past, Hebrews chapter 1, but by speaking to the world about this particular plan, particularly through the nation of Israel, but now he speaks to us through Jesus. So God's strategy, if you like, is that all might come to be told that Jesus is Lord and how they respond to him and that claim of lordship really, really matters. And on one hand, then I want to say to people like Rowan, I, I think use the freedom that you've got to go and do that somewhere. And if it means that you, know, you end up uh, going to the Japanese community in Sydney and using your Japanese to present the gospel to them in their heart language, or if you move to Japan, I take it that if you go with right motives, uh, the Lord will bless the work in one way or another. We don't exactly know how the Lord blesses the work because it's the Lord who gives the growth, both spiritually and numerically. But I take it you work as a labourer in God's harvest field, whether or not you're in the Japanese community in Sydney or in the nation of Japan. Um, I think that gives lots of freedom, actually. Um, and partly also what's at the heart of Rowan's question is um, What's the best thing to do? And again, we're, we're trying to aim for what we think is the most perfect choice, right? 
well, I, I think the law. I think the Lord gives us lots of options. Actually, He gives us lots of freedoms, and I think then it's a wisdom decision. And so uh, let's you know do the like the um, the superannuation ad, the compare the pair, right? Let's compare Rowan and I, just you know Rowan and me, right? Uh, let's say both of us have a heart to go to Japan. Uh, I'm, from what I know, I hope Rowan won't mind me saying this. I think pretty much from about the first week he gets to Japan, mm. he'd hit the ground running doing great ministry. Right? Uh, I know no Japanese, and it could take me 20 years to not only learn the language, but to actually understand the culture and to work out how do I present the gospel into a culture that is not my heart language. And so there's a sense in which if the Lord is coming back soon, which he is, I think there's wisdom in trying to say to someone like Rowan, look, you're probably better suited just because of your upbringing, the way in which God has already gifted you um, through family and experiences and things like that, for you to probably be in our sort of human economy, in our not, not the economic sense, but in our human sort of wisdom, better deployed, deployed to Japan than Patty. I think that's probably how I'd answer the question. Um, that doesn't mean that people who don't know Japanese shouldn't pray that they might go to Japan to reach the Japanese people. Um, in fact, we need more people to go and reach the nation of Japan. So anyone who's interested, go and start a prayer group and pray for J Japan and start learning Japanese and pray the Lord might use you somehow. Um, I think that's probably how I'd try and answer Rowan's question. So it helps in evaluating our own life circumstances, the ways we're wired, the ways we've been gifted to consider, even with the freedom we've got, consider what might be really beneficial for us to serve in. Not that we're obligated to, but it might be wise for us to do so. Yeah, and I think we see this. This is the one of the great values of people, say, doing a ministry apprenticeship for a couple of years. Uh, sometimes at the end of that two-year apprenticeship, it becomes clearer uh, that some people will most likely be better suited to, for example, maybe, maybe considering being team leaders and others maybe are better going to be better suited to being team members. And that's partly the way in which uh, the Lord has just wired everyone differently. And um, sometimes trying to work out um, through experience and the wisdom of others and discerning the word and meditating on it, that where the Lord has built us as a body, right? There's the eye and the hand and the foot and the ear, and we need all of the bits of the body. We do need people who can go to Japan. We need people who can stay here and evangelize the Japanese in Sydney. We need people who are going to be supporting the work in Japan financially and supporting the work in Sydney financially. We need, and so um, I think it's up to each of us to keep using biblical wisdom and understanding and the advice of, godly advice of others, seeking to discern what is our part in God's great sort of sending to the nations and might we be the one who goes. I really relate to Rowan's question here because early in the year, actually, I went on a visionary mission trip to Ethiopia just for a month. And I was completely shocked, not shocked, but I was very surprised in the way I felt like God led me in that trip. I went there thinking, yep, I'm definitely a frontline missionary. Not that I won't be that. I might be that in the future. But I came back thinking, actually, maybe God has equipped me otherwise to maybe be more so in mobilization or church planning here. So I just my perspective changed and it hurt me in a way i was very surprised to experience that but i think it was helpful to realize actually how has god actually equipped me how am i best going to serve others um but you know we, we, we never know i think the other thing is is just not 
caving into comfort. Like, am I thinking this way? Cause I don't want, I want to be comfortable and live in Sydney and enjoy living on the beaches. So I think that's another warning as well for us as well, for Rowan and I, that we shouldn't just want to stay here in Sydney cause his life's good. It's a pretty bad excuse, isn't it? Uh, abs- absolutely. Right. Um, there'll be some people who will stay in Sydney for all sorts of reasons. And there's, I've lost track of the population of Sydney, four and a half, five million people in Sydney and more and more, well, up until COVID, arriving regularly and many of them from countries which are um, either less reached or sometimes unreached. So there is a great need for gospel workers in Sydney, but there's also a great need for gospel workers all around the world. Mm. And so actually what we need to be encouraging people to be doing is to be going somewhere. Go, Go to your neighbor down the road who doesn't know Jesus. Go to your suburb down the road where there's very few Christians or a struggling church or, as we'd like to say in the sort of Sydney Uni context, the less reached and the less resourced. Go, go to that part of Australia which needs more well-equipped, well-trained Christians of all stages of life, not just those coming out of uni, but those who are perhaps seeking re-employment or change of job somewhere, and go to the nations. We actually need Christian believers to be going and to be remembering uh, that word that Jesus is coming back again and that because we are his children God knows all of our needs and will provide for those needs for us Mm. so good I'm sure we could keep talking on that topic for a long time but we'll leave it there because there are a couple more questions to to get through another question here from Hannah a general discussion around spiritual support networks perhaps even more so for single missionary workers from what I understand, such have heard, ministry can be isolating because you often cannot lean on the people underneath you for the same support. So should there be better spiritual support networks for people looking to go into ministry? Yeah, Hannah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I th- a couple of things to say about that. Um, we need to make sure that for those who are going into ministry, um, if uh, for those of us who are listening, you're considering going into ministry, that the particular um, ministry organisation or association or sort of platform, if you like, that you'll be working on, it'd be good to be asking them some really good questions about if I become a, a pastor in your denomination or a missionary with your organisation or um, a worker in your, say, scripture teaching network or whatever the ministry is that you're aspiring to do. I think it's worth asking what level of support will I be receiving? How well will I be supported? And I think that's quite a legitimate question to be asking and um, can be a legitimate factor in the decision making um, about where you might particularly pursue ministry, particularly if you've got certain freedoms and opportunities to do that. Um, I I think there um, are lots of ways in which um, organisations can continue to support uh, gospel workers. Um, and I think uh, part of that can often come from within the organisation or the denomination, but I think part of it can also come from within the local congregation as well. Uh, I think um, for all of us who are listening, if we let our pastors know that we are praying for them, that um, if we're, and as we're able to, we're supporting them financially, uh, and that we're... um, uh, we're on for them, we're being a support for them, then that alone will uh, be a great help to them. Um, I think sometimes uh, pastors have a sense that their 
doing the job and many that I know work hard and sometimes there's not a lot of words of encouragement from the congregation. At that point, I don't think what's necessary is every week that you compliment the minister on their sermon because after a while, that just sounds like you're throwing out fake compliments, right? If anything, it's be honest with your minister. And so uh, if you just thought that they didn't understand the passage well, then go and have the conversation with them. That that says to the minister, do it in a godly and humble way and recognise that you might be right or you might be wrong, right? But don't miss the point I'm trying to make, right? At least then the minister knows that you're engaged and that you're on and you're supportive of the work that they're doing um, without, uh, yeah. So I think that'd be the first thing I'd say. I think within particular mission agencies or mission organisations, um, many of them have worked really hard um, in the last sort of season for those that I'm aware of, the ones that I support or that come to mind, to make sure their missionaries are well cared for and supported, either by visiting people who will come and visit them and spend some time with them and offer to support them uh, or through some of their internal systems and processes. I think it's a great question for people to be asking of whatever organisation they go with. Um, having said that, I suspect there are probably some parts of the world, some of the unreached people groups of the world where it would be very difficult for mission organizations to provide good support structures and uh, the sort of people who will be sent into those places need to be very very robust individuals they, they probably need to be able to work well either by themselves or with their, um, their their spouse or within their family they need to have good strong uh, resilient family systems and structures um, they need to realise that it could be quite an isolating season of life. Um, but having said that, uh, we can receive words of encouragement from many generations of missionaries who have gone before us when you read their biographies. And in the end, their reliance is, uh, while it's on those who send them, it's actually on the Lord God and, and his word and the word that um, brings them comfort and brings them hope and uh, restores their souls when they've been suffering and when they feel downtrodden or they're being persecuted or when they feel like the work is just not going well. And so I, I'm, while I think it's very important that we put in place some sort of, if you like, some good human structures of support and building resilience, we also need to make sure that we actually keep relying heavily on the Lord um, and his powerful and comforting word. Mm. Amen. Question from GK Georgie. Where is the line between unnecessary slash unwise burnout and godly suffering for the kingdom in terms of working within slash beyond your capacity? Now, I'm sure Mikey, if he was here, would pipe in and say, hey, read my book. It's going to be helpful, which I would agree. The good life and last days is going to be helpful <laughs> for this question. But what would you say, Paddy, here about the line between burnout and working hard? in whatever ministry decide to go into? Uh, it's a good question. Um, there are others who have done much more extensive research on this. And uh, at some point, if you want to put a message on the Facebook group, I can try and direct you towards some of the things that they've been talking about. Um, there's been some work done uh, around uh, burnout in Australian clergy, a, a sort of a survey and a project that was done a number of years ago. Some of the results of that are really uh, revealing as to ways of preventing and possibly minimising burnout. In the end, it does relate to the previous question about having um, good spiritual habits and practices and good support structures. That's one of the factors, not the only factor. And I know that there's a couple of others who are doing some work on resilience in ministry um, 
because they've been thinking about what does it look like for clergy to, or just people in ministry, for example, to be able to sort of go the distance. And if they've committed to a lifetime of ministry, then how do they make sure that it's for all of life? Um, I wonder whether or not um, part of what it comes down to is an awareness of who you are as an individual and what is motivating you in ministry. So for the person who maybe is um, insecure in ministry and is seeking to perhaps please man rather than the Lord, they may tend towards, not always, but may tend towards overwork, workaholism, because they would prefer the praise of men rather than the praise of God. I take it that one of the things that speaks into that biblically is the Lord's command to take a day of rest. And that itself is an indication that the Lord is sovereign over his creation and over whatever ministry we're involved with, um, things will continue to happen even if we have a day of rest. And so um, I, I think that's very helpful biblical advice. It's a biblical imperative. Take a day off. Um, but don't be a legalist about it. There will be some seasons, and I know when I've talked to others in ministry, where it's a heightened season of ministry, and they've often found it difficult to have a dedicated, really restful, um, restorative day off. There are other seasons in their ministry where that's been um, more than possible, and it's been actually very refreshing and reinvigorating for them. Um, so I think there's good biblical wisdom that part of um, what we need to keep doing is undertaking good spiritual practices, uh, spending time in the word regularly, day by day, week by week, uh, spending time working out what we think it says, spending time praying, spending time in the community of God's people, seeking uh, encouragement and wisdom from them. And in many respects, part of me wants to say it's also... Um, I, th I think around watching our lives and doctrine closely, as Paul would encourage Timothy to do in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Um, if you um, have some resources that enable you to identify if you're on the verge of burnout or burning out, then you need to go and get some help from that, depending upon the severity of it. Um, I think um, there's a sense in which as you get to know yourself, you'll start to know where your limits are. We are all limited because we're not God. We can't work continually. We do need to stop. Hmm. And that's a good thing. That's the way God's designed us. But each of us has slightly different limits in certain seasons, and part of that is also affected by our um, personal circumstances, um, our, our immediate biological family, those that we live with, and it's also affected by um, our stage of life. It's also affected by personal health. There's all of these things. So I think as soon as as you work towards working out where are sort of the limits in ministry, that helps you know that actually that's where I function well. I function well when I'm functioning sort of at or near my limit. I'm not functioning well when I'm really over my limit too far, right? Um, yeah, I think that's probably how I'd try and answer Hannah. Yeah, I think I've probably uh, got to the question. Uh, sorry, uh, Georgie, I think I've probably got to the question there. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Hey, it's been so good answering all these questions, Patty. I really appreciate all the time and effort you've put into preparing your responses. I know we didn't get to answer all of them. So if you didn't get your question answered, let us know and we'll definitely try and chase it up with you if you want to have an answer or you can even ask for season two. One final question, though, from myself. What does it mean when it says that teachers will be judged more strictly in James? It's one of those passages I've always been curious about. Thoughts on this one? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've done a bit of thinking on this one because uh, I thought you might ask this particular question, as in I thought we'd get this onto the podcast, right? Um, I think there's a couple of different understandings here. If you go back and read um, a couple of different Bible commentaries on how they think that this would be understood, there's a couple of different meanings. It could mean, one of the meanings uh, that's often raised is that it could mean that teachers are judged in a harsher manner. So that, for example, if a teacher has um, misspoken or done the wrong thing, or if perhaps they've led people astray or they've misunderstood the word that they're teaching, then the judgment from the Lord will be perhaps um, given in an angrier or harsher tone or God will be less forgiving somehow. Um, so we can often think of human examples where people will judge very harshly. They might judge unjustly or they might judge unwisely. I think the difficulty I've got with that interpretation is that we know that the Lord is loving and gracious. He's slow to anger and that he will only ever judge mm. justly, which means I think it's harder to say that um, the teachers are judged in a harsher manner in that mm. sense. So I think what James is saying um, here is that the teachers will actually be held to a higher standard in judgment. I take it here that teachers will be judged more strictly, as in the standard will be higher for them because they're teachers. The, the teachers are expected to know more of the scriptures and teach people accordingly. So, for example, um, you know, the manner in which, um, uh, say, a, a reasonably new Christian in late high school explains the gospel to one of their friends and the gospel worker with 20 years experience explains the gospel or teaches a particular passage to their friends. Well, I think more is expected of those who have had greater experience, greater knowledge of the scriptures, greater opportunity to study them and to teach them and to reflect on them. So I think the Lord will hold those people to a higher standard. I think that's what it's meaning um, about when James says that teachers will be judged more strictly. Humbling stuff, but helpful and important to remember in this climate that we currently live in where there have been teachers who have fallen very sadly. And yet surely, Paddy, there is this hope that we can have as the next generation that we can be good, godly men and women of God who serve him faithfully so that one day we'll be spoken over us. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we hope and want, is it not? Absolutely. I think those who those who approach the possibility of ministry with humility rather than pride or arrogance, those who are willing to get on and do the, the job, the work of the Lord of bringing the gospel to bear into the lives of people and not necessarily seek public recognition for it, nor seek power within particular organisational structures, either for their own gain or for reputation. Those men and women who are willing to get on and do that work, which I think in ministry is often the majority of people, if that's what you aspire to, then I take it on the last day, the Lord will say, well done, good and faithful servant. I think it's a great thing to aspire to be in ministry and would really encourage people to really keep thinking and praying very seriously about it. Well, as I said, Patty, it's been great chatting to you. Really appreciate your answers and looking forward to chatting to you and all of our guests next season in season two. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening to the Aspire podcast. We'll see you in April 2021 for season two. But until then, if you'd like to leave us a review to help expand our audience, we'd really love that. Until next time.